Welcome to Wandering Mind, an audio tour of some of the most amazing holiday destinations you can possibly imagine. I'm your host, Hope Faulkner, and I'll be bringing you all the information you need to plan the holiday of a lifetime. I'll tell you about all the big tourist attractions and let you in on the secrets locals love. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. So let's go on holiday. Today's destination, Salem Hole. After my adventures in the frozen wilderness around the Redmond Pinnacle Resort, and just for variety's sake, I asked the office to send me somewhere a little warmer this time. You can imagine my joy then when I was assigned a cave system to investigate. But I've heard of Salem Hole before, and there's been a bit of a buzz about it recently, and I realised it might not all be dark, damp tunnels and stumbling around blindly with a headlamp after all. Besides, I took this job to try new things. Why not get a bit out of my comfort zone and explore a cave system? And what a cave system it is. Salem Hole is listed as a site of natural and cultural importance here in Pradoo, and it's not hard to see why. At first glance, it might not seem like much, but after a short walk through an underwhelming cave with bare rock walls, thankfully well lit with lanterns, my group briefly lost sight of our expert tour guide as he turned sideways and slipped through a gap in the rock. One by one, we followed. It's not a very tight gap, really. Unless you need to move with especially bulky mobility aids, it should be an easy squeeze. But you couldn't fit two people through side by side. I think the guides play it up a bit for dramatic effect, and why shouldn't they? Nobody pays them much attention once they emerge into the next chamber. In fact, guides often have to gently move their charges out of the way so the next person can come through, because your instinctive reaction is to stop and stare. I know I did. As you step out of the crack in the rock, you're taken aback. Your eyes can't process what they're seeing for a moment, and then they adjust to being dazzled by the sparkling quartz that forms the chamber. Walls, ceiling, floors, every surface sparkles, and it's so breathtaking that I almost couldn't focus on our guide talking about the history of the cave. Until quite recently, at least recently in geological terms, but actually over a century ago, this entire chamber was undiscovered, filled with volcanic ash left over from an ancient eruption of nearby Mount Ponorain, now long extinct. When aspiring augurite miners from the nearest town, Morel, then mired in poverty, set about digging it clear, they found this abundance of quartz quite disappointing. They soon realised, however, that people would gladly pay to see something so beautiful. The entrance fee isn't too steep, and this chamber alone would justify it, but the cave goes deeper. Beyond the Quartz Palace, as it's known, which is smaller than it looks, at about 120 feet long and about the same across at its widest point, tours continue into what's known as the Dark Chamber. As you might imagine, the Dark Chamber has very low lighting. Rumours abound that this is to protect some fragile prehistoric paintings high up in the cave, but my guide didn't mention any, and I saw no sign of artwork in this particular chamber. The darkness does, however, help to show off the striking contrast between the obsidian of the walls and floors and the glow of what looks like a slow-moving lava flow running through several cracks in the floor. There are even a couple of spots in the cave where you can actually stand on solid volcanic glass and feel the heat rising from the lava below you. Fun fact, while there are a few places in the cave where it's believed the obsidian may have occurred naturally, the vast majority of what's here is a sort of tiled surface made by an ancient civilization known as the Fremke. Even today, scientists, and there are plenty around here these days, are baffled by the way the obsidian has been treated to be almost unbelievably durable. 
All attempts to recreate such a feat in laboratory conditions have failed, despite the technologies that have developed in the millennia since the dark caverns obsidian tiles were laid. The cavern is a stunning example of what ancient peoples like the Fremke were capable of achieving, and it's the most awe-inspiring historical feat currently open to general view here in Salem Hall. Beyond it is a more modern innovation in the form of a hand-crank lift capable of taking 15 full-grown men down into the depths of the larger cave system, but few tourists pay any attention to the unassuming little staff door beyond the lift cage. To protect its contents, passage through that door is strictly limited to academics and others with a particular anthropological interest, because the small chamber beyond contains the remains of 12 members of that same mysterious civilization. It's believed that the people interred here must have been rulers or high-ranking officials in Fremke society, and preliminary analysis suggests that between the twelve of them, they must have seen three centuries go by. Their collective tomb is covered in intricate paintings and unfathomable carvings, but no real information. Why were these twelve interred together? Why not with the rest of their people? Why here? These are questions the greatest minds, both within Pradu and internationally are still working to answer. The rest of us, unfortunately, are limited to reading about it in an illustrated guidebook, available to read or purchase from any of the tour guides. Descending in the lift, it was time for another surreal moment of wide-eyed wonder, as we travelled through a thick layer of white cloud and then, incredibly, emerged into what appeared to be open sky. For a few seconds, I had the disconcerting sensation of being in a hot air balloon, drifting over a vast, unscarred landscape complete with mountains, vegetation and water. This, hidden away beneath what you'd normally imagine when you picture a cave, is the Lower Salem Biome. It's a self-contained ecosystem barely touched by human hands, though a tentative archaeological dig consisting of a single trial trench has already turned up indications that wooden post structures might once have stood in this underground world. It's a little early to speculate, but that hasn't dampened the spirits of any of the various researchers I met during our short foray into the foliage. One of the things they were most excited about was the discovery of those post holes in the trench, opening up the possibility that the Fremke, who built the chambers above, might also have occupied this cave. What possessed them to make the journey? How did they reach the ground safely? Where are they now? There are so many questions, and we may never truly know the answers. A more immediate and concrete area of study for those lucky enough to spend time in the lower biome is the wildlife. The plants alone are enough to occupy the researchers here for decades. Much of the foliage down here is a few shades bluer than we might usually expect leaves to be, and absolutely all of it seems to curl back on itself. One hypothesis is that this twisting shape, visible in leaves, stems, branches and tree trunks in every direction as you disembark from the lift, might somehow play a part in the way these plants draw energy from their environment. They obviously don't get enough sunlight to photosynthesize, but they still grow, and several of the other ways more familiar plants grow on the surface, or even in other cave systems, have been ruled out. Until we know how these plants get their nutrients, it has been ruled too dangerous to try to eat any of the strange bulbous fruits that are so abundant down here. But after sufficient testing, who knows? They may be coming to a kitchen near you soon. While the botanists grapple with that mystery, and indeed with the sheer quantity of new plant species they need to catalogue from the explored portion of the cave, the zoology department has plenty to report as well. The few species I've been told about, and can now share with you, are only known by nicknames the postgraduate researchers have given them, but they're too fascinating not to at least mention in passing. For example, the night scale, 
At first, it was believed to be a shed scale dropped by some larger creature, but when researchers picked one up to examine its bioluminescent properties, they had to catch it first. It's a little like a glowing cockroach, and just as hardy. These tiny creatures have been spotted hopping across hot lava with no apparent ill effects, skipping across the surface as if it was water. Fortunately for those of you who are a little squeamish about insects, this one only grows to about the size of an adult human's thumbnail, as far as researchers have seen. It's so small and agile that it's proven hard to study, but the explorers of Lower Salem are nothing if not persistent. Besides, entomology professor Florence Verd told me, I'd much rather study these than those flaming hellcats. Now those are creepy. It wasn't long before I found out what Professor Verd meant by that. The lower biome is dark, lit mostly by the spectacular lava fall that emerges from the underside of the dark chamber, drops into a similarly awe-inspiring pool, and flows away, twisting its way through the cave. I was just watching a night scale make its way across the river when my attention was caught by a splash, and two bright pinpricks of light that appeared out of nowhere in the darkness across the cave. I'm not ashamed to say that I yelped, listeners, and scientists rush from all directions to assure me that everyone reacts the same way when they see their first hellcat. The creature is so named due to its vaguely feline shape and its habit, which I had just observed, of swatting things into lava for no apparent reason. The splash I saw was a fruit of some sort, being launched to a fiery oblivion at random by the scaly creature. Unlike most other things in the biome, the Hellcat has almost no bioluminescence. It's barely visible against the rock walls and the undergrowth, until light bounces off its eyes, giving it a somewhat demonic appearance. Besides its eyes, the only easily visible part of the Hellcat is the tip of its long tail, which does glow softly. Researchers tell me that the cats have been observed using this unusual feature to lure in unsuspecting night scales, which they eat and even holding their tails in their mouths to illuminate the ground in front of them. The Hellcats are an unsettling blend of creepy and cute, and the creepiness is only intensified by their apparent high tolerance for heat and their ability to walk up sheer rock faces as if they were on level ground. Indeed, Hellcats sleep halfway up the cave walls, clinging like bats to the rock, and the glow of their tails gives the impression of a starry night sky as you look around. The obsidian cobra takes full advantage of the hellcat's position on the food chain. The snakes are almost perfectly camouflaged here in their natural habitat. At first I thought the obsidian cobra didn't have any bioluminescent markings either, but then a researcher obligingly prodded the one he was showing me with a stick. As the creature reared up, its hood flared out for the first time, revealing two bright circles of light, the perfect mimicry of hellcat eyes in the darkness. Given that the hellcat, slightly larger than the average bobcat, is three times the size of the cobra and probably the scourge of other creatures in this biome, that seems like a decent defensive strategy to me. When sleeping in a tree, draped over the hoop that trees down here form by their corkscrew-like growth, the cobra seems to leave its head dangling down, displaying those full size, and from a distance it's easy to mistake those glowing spots for yet another hellcat on a rock wall. There's so much more to discover down here, but conservation takes priority, and as such, visits to the lower biome are strictly limited. While the cave above is certainly a worthwhile site in itself, I do advise that you book your lift pass as early as you can if you plan to come here. Accommodation is available in various towns and villages nearby, but the closest place to stay is at the stationary caravan park outside Morel, about 40 minutes walk from the cave mouth. That's also where most of the researchers here live, 
so you stand a fair chance of running into someone who might be willing to chat about their discoveries, or give you directions to the cave if you need them. Students who want to join the research effort should discuss the possibility of a study holiday with the institution at which they study. While placements are limited, the researchers here are keen to hear from would-be volunteers as exploration efforts continue. In a few years, this cave will probably be the hottest vacation spot on the planet, and not just because of all the lava. Even now, with access limited, it's definitely worth the trip for the upper cave alone, to say nothing of the wonders of an entirely new world below. For me, though, it was a flying visit, and though I enjoyed my time in the cave, I'll also be glad to return to a more familiar altitude, with more familiar wildlife. It's a little like a dream world down there. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Hope Faulkner for Wandering Mind, and it's time for another adventure. Safe travels! Wandering Mind is written and performed by Eleanor Musgrove, with music from purpleplanet.com. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, and maybe consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingpodcast to get access to extra episodes just for patrons. Or visit wanderingmindpodcast.wordpress.com for more information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>